Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Just to give a quick introduction to the conversation, I thought it would be just helpful for us to, to lay out a little bit of what's uh, taking place in the culture as a quick reminder to folks. It's actually probably not much need of reminder for that. But um, we, we want to travel back to, as you see on the, the slide that's over our heads here, to two events that have happened in terms of the legal uh, battles that have taken place in our country. In 1996, we had the, uh, the DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, that was passed. And in this, uh, in this bill, which was passed overwhelmingly by U.S. Congress and also by President Clinton signing this, there was an attempt here to allow marriage to be defined as one man and one woman. Let me, let me read, actually. The, in, from DOMA, the, marriage, uh, the term marriage means only a legal union between one man and one woman as husband and wife, and the word spouse referred only to a person of the opposite sex who is the husband or wife in that scenario. So the Defense of Marriage Act also affirmed the power of each state to make a decision on, on whether or not to accept so-called same-sex marriages as a legitimate legal institution. So lots of things happened in between, but we jump ahead of roughly 20 years, 19 years later, and we see on June 25th this summer, um, the Supreme Court, SCOTUS, in the, uh, in the case that was, uh, I can't pronounce the name well, the uh, Obergefell et al. versus Hodges, I believe is the way you pronounce the first name on there, this addressed the constitutionality of state bans on same-sex marriage. And this was led by uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy, and the majority found that the bans on same-sex marriage were unconstitutional. And that brings us to where we are today, where we're in this place where really uh, what I like to describe this in my Christian ethics classes, it, it seems as if our culture has really done an inversion in the way that historically we've understood not only what marriage is, but now actually trying to reinterpret the entire word marriage and, and put a new definition to that. So that brings us to this discussion where we find that the President of the United States on the day that this took place celebrated uh, in a way where you can see the, the picture on the overhead with an unprecedented light show uh, demonstrating his moral position on this and, and also then speaking in the name of the United States about this particular issue. So this really signaled a massive cultural shift on this. And of course, if, if you uh, show the next slide, we had this other event take place this summer where a U.S. Olympic athlete, uh, at the time I remember as a young man, idolizing Bruce Jenner as the greatest athlete in the world, uh, and now he is um, displaying himself as a woman. And uh, so we'll have opportunity to discuss that a little bit. Dr. Williams in particular will have some, some thoughts for us on these particular issues. So we have a lot to talk about in a short amount of time. So let me start with you, Rosaria. If you don't mind, not everybody here knows your story. If you don't mind, if you could take a few minutes to give us a brief synopsis of your personal journey as it relates to not only uh, your sexuality but your Christian conversion and how you're uh, experiencing God's call on your life now. Right, right, right. Well, you know, first of all, when you look at the world that we have today, um, you have to realize that I'm one of the people who made this world possible. So the blood is absolutely on my hands. It's all true. 
1996, when DOMA was passed, I stood with my people, and my people at that time were um, my LGBTQ community, my lesbian lover, uh, that was my world. And, and then in, in, in 2015, I, I stood with my people, and my people now are God's people. Um, I'm saved by the grace of God alone, and, and, um, and by his power alone, I stand here. So you might even say that, that being on the losing team of culture is my spiritual gift. You know, I... <laughs> so it's just a nice way of being a barometer for things. So, uh, on the wrong side of history. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, I've just made it a professional, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I was, I was um, a committed um, secular feminist. Very much feminism was my worldview. I... Um, did not come out as a lesbian until I was 28, which is, um, you know, late by some standards. I, I very much thought I had had a heterosexual adolescence, but, but was constantly surprised at the fact that I could be dating men and falling in love with women at the same time. So it, it was a, you know, it was just a sort of a strange time. And when I met my first uh, lesbian lover, I, I, I really felt like life finally came together for me and made sense. Um, I really didn't grieve anything. I mean, when I hear Christians talk about struggling with homosexuality, quite frankly, I never struggled with homosexuality until I became a believer. You know? no. I mean, I just, I just, I'm a really good sinner. You know, I don't know what to say. Um, and uh, and so I was, I was really perplexed by Christians. Um, Christians uh, confused me. I, I, cr- I truly did not understand why Christians would not leave consenting adults alone. That just seemed like a basis of of uh, kind of civil civil democracy and civil work. And um, Christians also seemed like bad readers to me. I was confused by the way that Christians would use the Bible, sort of like a punctuation mark, you know, to end a conversation rather than to deepen it. And um, that's just not the way, that's just not the way we use books in postmodern reality. So I just found Christians to be bizarre. Um, and after my tenure book was, you know, was, was locked and done and, and published and reviewed and, and uh, my, 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 uh, my wings were unclipped, I decided to embark on a book on the religious right from a lesbian feminist point of view. And, um, you know, I'm a scholar, so I did recognize that there are a lot of things about this book, the Bible, I did not know. And I immediately started looking for someone who might help me with that, and help came in a very curious way. I... I wrote a very negative uh, op-ed piece on the promise keepers coming to Syracuse. And, and I truly don't remember what terrible offense they committed. You know, maybe my favorite parking space was taken that day. But it was big. Whatever it was, it was big. Um, and I received a lot of, uh, you know, hate mail and a lot of fan mail. And, um, but one letter that I received really defied all of that. And it was from a neighbor and a pastor. His name was Ken Smith. And for two years, Ken and his wife, Floyd, brought the church to me, a heathen. I was reading the Bible in order to critique it and in order to trash it. And I think, quite frankly, they were just so delighted to be with anyone who was reading the Bible as rigorously as I was that they were, they were really helping me think through it. And it was a very complex time. It was a very painful time. Um, I started reading the Bible the way I'm trained to read a book. You know, I never went to VBS, so I didn't know you're supposed to read it like, you know, like, like a horoscope, you know, flip around, put your finger somewhere, find a verse. Nobody told me that. So, um, you know, I just, I read it like a book. I looked at its canonicity, at its uh, authority, at the different kinds of hermeneutical approaches one takes to the Old Testament in relation to the New Testament. 
and in the course of reading through it about seven times, um, all of my well-worn assumptions just didn't stick. And so the, the upshot of the story really is, is that at some point the word of God just got to be bigger inside me than I. And that's, that's, that's what happened. And then life started to really get complex. So I, I'm going to jump ahead to something I was actually going to ask you in the conclusion just because it's, it's poignant here. On your, on your blog, you wrote the, these words. When you com- converted to Christ, you went from being someone who felt that uh, you were responsible and entitled to interrogate the Bible to someone who believed that the Bible had authority over your life and therefore had, you had the responsibility, or excuse me, the Bible had the responsibility and the entitlement to interrogate you. Uh, that truth that the Bible interrogates you did not stop at conversion. Can you take a moment to discuss with us what this means yeah, for you? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I, I was really struggling with um, with three things, and these are three things that I think the world is struggling with right now. I, I have the opportunity to travel a lot and and talk with people who are really angry with me, and I do an open Q and A and. And pretty much people take both barrels and let me have it. And, and, and probably I've had thousands of questions and they all come down to three questions. Questions about God's authority, questions about God's holiness, and questions about the living integrity of the word of God. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's great that people ask me those questions because those were my questions. Um, and and the, I think those are just three things that, that, that believers also really need to struggle with. If, if there is no one higher than God, then we do not have the right to judge God. It's the other way around. And so I think that the Christian life is consistently a life of dying to self. I think that the Christian life is consistently a life of uh, counting the costs and taking up a cross, and um, and I think that that has that has um, you know Ken Smith really really hit that hard with me um, when he saw that the Word of God was really rooting in in my life. Of course, in our churches, that was not a rush to move me to an altar call. That was a slow down, Rosaria. Have you counted the costs? You are going to lose everything. And you need to be ready. And, and, and when that happened, you know, and I did lose everything. Uh, and I had to. I actually did not lose my job because I was tenured. Um, but I did get to go before an ethics board and talk about why I was changing my, my field of study from queer theory to uh, Christian hermeneutics. That was a fun conversation. <laughs> you can imagine. That was lots of fun. Um, so it was hard, and I was amidst a body of believers who knew it would be hard and who, who knew that they were not more merciful than God. They didn't try to make it less hard. What they did was they came in close. They understood that leaving my lover was one thing, but leaving a LGBTQ community is another entirely. That is a community that functions very much like a family. Every night of the week, somebody's home is open uh, for food, for fellowship, just to stand between you and depression. And they knew, this little church knew that if I was going to make it, They were going to have to really be my family. They were going to have to live out Mark 10, 
28 to 31, they, they, it had to be real, not just words. And so they did that. And that has become, for me, um, a calling as well in my life, um, that, that when, you stand with the, with, when you stand alongside of someone who, is, who needs to lose everything for Jesus, you're not helping that person if you try to jolly them out of the reality of that loss. But you are helping that person if you stand alongside and you're available. And not just by invitation only. Not, you know, please don't think that community is a fellowship meal the third Lord's Day of the month. Bring a covered dish. You know, that's just not how, that's not how real people function. It just isn't. Um, so, so uh, you know, in some ways, they knew, I think, that I was going to be moving from a, a, a vital community to, in some ways, you know, Christian communities, to me, often look like, like we are on a starvation diet of community. Um, and so, so, yes, I would say dying to self, taking up a cross, and not expecting that, that your um, personal experience is going to go any better than the Savior you love and follow. And, and communicating that to a watching world at the same time that you're communicating that in Christ, you are never alone. In Christ, you have union, you have imminent union, you have redemptive union, you have um, applicatory union. Um, you have union with Christ that started from before the foundations of the world and will carry you through to the new Jerusalem. And that is something that only Christ can give and only the church can embody. And so both of those at once, you carry the cross for the purpose of finishing the race with your Lord and Savior. Okay, so your response there is it's interesting on so many levels, but one of the places that it bumps into all of us as professors, and I'm sure for you as you're on the road and traveling, I have a lot of Christian students in particular, but uh, non-Christian students as well. The ones that surprise me are the Christian students that say things to me like, this seems like it's a private issue. Why is the church involved? Why, why should Christians care about it? Now, you've, you've just told us a story, but as part of your story, the assumption was if you came to Christ, you were leaving the gay lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Right. There, we, we now have a new right. generation of younger Christians who don't necessarily make that connection. And we'll talk about the biblical passages before we're through today on that. But, so help us to think about it. I'd actually like for both you and Dr. Heimbach to address this idea. But why does this matter for us as Christians to think about? Why does the SCOTUS decision make a difference for us as Christians? And how should we interact with this? So, mm-hmm. Rosario, let me let you start and then Dr. Heimbach. Okay, all right. Well, I think part of it has to do with an understanding of whether a sexual biblical ethic is central to the gospel or peripheral to it. So part of it is just sort of figuring out where this fits. And I think that as Christians became, as evangelicals became New Testament only people, we lost the ability to really defend the, um, the, 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 the scriptural in integrity of a biblical sexual ethic in the gospel. So I personally don't think you can defend biblical marriage on the New Testament alone because biblical marriage is a creation ordinance. So, so some of it really is just um, understanding that Christians are called to be good stewards, not, of, not only of the earth, but of ideas. And a Christian world and life view is a necessary lens for all people in order for, among other things, a liberal democracy to thrive. 
So we, we know that not everyone's going to come to Christ. We hope for that. But we also recognize that a biblical world and life view will be better for you even if you don't come to Christ. It will be better for you. Life will go better for you. Now we hope for more than that, but we don't shortchange you at the very least. So those are, those are the, the two things that we need to keep in mind. And, and I, you know, I would say, I was just recently on a secular camp, campus under a, you know, a slew of protesters and secular press and you know, I'm the new face of hate speech on campus. You can't quote from the Bible, which made me ask, well, what about to kill a mockingbird? That's another story. But you know, I, I think that people are hungry for uh, authentic Christianity. I, I think they've heard a lot of other stuff. And it's important now to go and share the authentic gospel. And I think people are hungry for that. Dan, do you have some thoughts on that? Uh, well, the question is about why is it a public matter? And I think it's, uh, that's a very important question to address because so much of the public debate and uh, influence on Christians has been intensely personal and inward rather than outward. And so I think it's a very important, when we talk about civil marriage, you're talking about the way marriage is practiced as an institution in general, uh, Rosario mentioned it as a creational ordinance, uh, but even if you take out the theological, you know, in a, in a secular uh, state, uh, it's, it's, it's a public institution. And we're talking about redefining, changing the structure of a public institution and if we as Christians can't explain why it should matter to everybody without quoting the Bible, the Bible is very important. We do know what the Bible says is true. But when we're talking to people who don't accept the Bible, we have to be able to explain why, the, why marriage uh, and the way it's structured, the way it's defined, matters to them in a way that they find persuasive that uh, goes beyond what the Bible says, even though it's consistent with the Bible. And I think the reason it matters publicly how marriage is structured is because marriage is the most basic of all social institutions. It is a social institution. It's the most basic. Not only is it the most basic, it's absolutely essential. That is, no society can survive without marriage as a social institution. If you deconstruct marriage, you get rid of marriage, you no longer have marriage as a social institution, society itself will collapse because it is the most basic, the most essential. And, and so what's at stake with the redefinition of marriage, and I think it's very important to know that we are talking about redefining. We're not talking about keeping something the same and just letting a few more people practice it. We're talking about completely redefining not only its meaning, but its structure as what makes it an institution. And all institutions, to be institutions, have some kind of objective structure. That's why friendship isn't an institution. It has no objective structure. It's not defined by a way that is objectively measurable, but marriage is. And so what, the, uh, what, what Oberfeld did is it completely deconstructs the, uh, the institution as an institution. And, uh, and, and when you do that, it has no objective structure. That means that this, the institution cannot survive uh, because it has no objective structure. And if you define it as something that is completely subjective, has no objective structure, it ceases to be an institution and eventually, ultimately, society will collapse. It's that important. Okay, so I want, this is a great opportunity to give you 
uh, a chance to speak to this. A couple years ago, some of you students might not be aware of this, but we had a panel discussion on this very stage where we had, this was prior to the North Carolina passing the marriage amendment. And uh, Dr. Heimbach was on the panel and was actually making an excellent point at that moment. And I want to get you a chance to do this again. But what happened was that uh, John Stewart on The Daily Show, a national television, pulled out a, about a 12-second soundbite. And then what, this typically happens when people can't actually use intellect to use discussion and actually engage in argument. They'll oftentimes resort to name-calling. It felt like something out of, uh, out of elementary school. It was remarkably uh, infantile what he did on national television. But in doing so, he insulted you directly on a point related to this. So you want to clarify that point? Well, sure. I'm, I'm glad to. I'm, in fact, I, uh, I wear it as a badge of honor. Uh, it's not nearly, uh, doesn't rise nearly to the level of what uh, Rosario has uh, been uh, addressing and having to, having to live up to. But uh, it also, you know, you never know when things you say on the stage here in chapel at Southeastern will go national. Uh, <laughs> with the John Stewart show. So that was, that was an interesting uh, experience. Um, what I said there was that if you redefine marriage in a way that uh, erases the difference, the public difference uh, between same-sex couples and, and opposite-sex couples uh, in order to normalize uh, their behavior, uh, what the point I said before, you, you define it by something that is subjective and Im immeasurable. And, uh, and if you do that, in other words, you define it as a way of affirming your, your, your personal feelings of love, you know, whatever they are, I don't know what they are, you have to tell me, uh, then there's no way that uh, society or the law can discern when it exists and, uh, and what the difference would be. Anybody's uh, attractions are going to be the same as anybody else's. And so there'd be no way to distinguish between what justifies marriage and loving, uh, loving ice cream, which, which was my way of, uh, of making the point. And he, uh, he took that clip and, 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 and poo-pooed it. But, uh, you know... <laughs> <laughs> that was my point exactly. And, uh, and, and you can do searches on the internet and uh, find all sorts of people, you know, alleging to marry the Eiffel Tower, alleging to marry, you know, a locomotive, alleging to marry their dog, or alleging to marry themselves or a pop-up picture of themselves uh, as a way of affirming their feelings for themselves or their dog or their horse or, or the Eiffel Tower. Which is, which, if that, if everything that you love is marriage, then marriage is nothing. Okay, so let me actually give you a chance to jump in on that. Yeah, and I, and I think that, that that points to the, the, the real issue in the SCOTUS decision. It wasn't just a redefinition of marriage. It was a redefinition of the metaphysics of personhood. Yeah. And that's why Christians need to be prepared for the next round, which is a, the uh, uh, you know, SOGI, S-O-G-I, gender identity, transgender rights issues. You simply cannot have a, even a concept of transgender rights without a complete redefinition of personhood. And you cannot have transgender rights without an overwhelmingly societal embrace of postmodernism and postmodernity as a social good. And so that, I think, is the real issue. And I think sometimes when, when at least you know, on, on, on college campuses, if you go and you say, you know, well, civilization is going to explode now that gay people get to get married, you know, that gets poo-pooed, absolutely. But I think when you say, look, have you thought about what it means that every human being 
is now defined by sexual orientation because of five unelected Supreme Court justices. I mean, why don't we look at this concept of sexual orientation? People act as though it's as old as Adam. It's actually as old as Freud. It's a category mistake. It, uh, even Foucault, this is always fun, too, to talk about on a secular campus, you know? Michel Foucault, the, um, the founder in some ways of the idea that gender and sexuality are social constructs, himself declared that when sexual orientation became rooted to personhood, as it did in Freud's economy, that a new species was born. All of a sudden, homosexuality went from a verb, a practice, what people did, to a noun, a person, who you are. You simply didn't have that before. Instead, what you had was a biblical understanding, not because everybody embraced the Bible, but because you had a Christian world and life view that predominantly organized how we thought about people. And so you had an understanding that human beings were this, male or female, with a soul that will last forever. And so the imposition of sexual orientation as a category, and I say category mistake, completely takes out soul-bearing and gender essentialism at the same time. If you want to say something really scandalous on a secular, a secular college, or I will say at a Christian college today, just say this. Being born male or female comes with ethical and moral responsibilities and constraints. So we have now a bigger problem than society collapsing, and I want to eat my ice cream too if it goes down, but uh, we've... <laughs> We have a redefinition of personhood, and when people cannot relate to themselves and others as human beings and understand that that is a distinct category, different from other mammals, it is not just that we have a mammal brain, it is that we are image bearers of a holy God, we are unable to live at any, any semblance of peace. So we have this phrase that's uh, common now in our culture that we may be on the wrong side of history on this discussion. But you think through that, and based on what you just said, we, history, regardless of culture, time, civilization, have understood men and women are distinct, different, and this other category that we're talking about of transgender, homosexual, it's never been understood until just recently. So we're talking about 20, 30 years versus all of human history. I, I think right now we're on the wrong side of history in our culture. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Okay. Sam, do you want to jump in on any of these points at this point? I'm going to come back to you on transgender issues in a moment, but... You know, I, I think one of the, the, the critical things that, 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 that Rosario's pointed out is to reduce our identities to our sexual component of our personality is, it's, it's a, it's, it really, it's very uh, small, it's very reductionistic, and it reduces us to really something that we share with animals and doesn't increase us to something that we share with the one who we believe put us here as made in his image. And so I, I, I think that the challenge for us uh, publicly, conversationally, is to not be viewed as people that are trying to, they view us as the ones that are trying to reduce choices and reduce everything down to something that puts people in tiny little boxes. I think it's quite the opposite. I think instead that to reduce a person down to their sexual attractions uh, is, uh, it's, it's very small, it's very demeaning, it's, it's a devaluing of uh, who we understand 
ourselves to be as persons, not like animals, except in some biological and structural ways, but instead like God. So. Yeah, and I think through the ancient uh, heresy, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, heresy of Gnosticism, which separated the body and the soul. So here you have in the modern culture mm-hmm. almost a rejection of the biological, mm-hmm. only an emphasis on the internal feelings that somebody has. And so I make a choice on what I feel, and that defines who I am. But the opposite isn't that we just go to, to physicalism. It's not just about our biology. Your point is that God took body and soul, integrated them together as image bearers, and so we want the whole self to flourish. But the outward markers are, are the symbols of what's, what we are internally. And I think that's where our culture is making all these incredible mistakes on these. Let me make a quick uh, uh, adjustment through a few minutes here. Let's talk about the scriptures and how they relate to this. I think this is an important place for us to, to do so. And not long ago, I would say probably in the, uh, two, three decades ago, you would find that the discussion in the Christian culture was pretty monolithic. In other words, most Christians and most denominations were, were similar on the point that the scriptures were clear. Homosexuality is wrong. It's, a, uh, it's an issue that we can stand with great clarity on. But there were two books that came out, one in the 80s and then I believe the other one's in the 90s, one by Robin Scroggs called The New Testament and Homosexuality and then another one by John Boswell entitled Christianity, Social Tolerance, and Homosexuality. And at least from my point of view, those were two really landmark early studies that were trying to change the hermeneutic on how you look at the scriptures, trying to redefine the scriptures in a way that would make gay activity, homosexual activity, um, uh, able to work with a Christian point of view. So you could claim to be a gay Christian on these sort of things. More recently, however, these arguments that were started by those gentlemen in those days really have moved mainstream very quickly. I think there's several places in culture where that's taken place on this. So normally then what we would say is when we find people in the culture discussing the Bible and homosexuality, typically you'll see that they'll focus and say there's largely six passages of scripture that relate to what the Bible teaches on homosexuality. And guys, if you could put the slide up to show our our audience what these these verses are. Most of the time, the, the gay community will say these are the only passages in the Bible that speak to the issue of homosexuality. Now, what, what, what will typically happen then, the community, the gay community has then tried to make a new hermeneutic to how to deal with these four passages. And so if you'll show the next slide, I'll just read these really briefly so you can see those. Here are four versions of this. The first one is, the Bible does not oppose homosexuality because it does not speak to true or innate homosexuality or orientation. Secondly, Hebrew 8.13 says there's a new covenant that makes the old one obsolete or outdated, so the Old Testament no longer applies. A third approach to this hermeneutic would be that the Bible's teachings ought to be respected, but the Holy Spirit reveals a more updated ethic. And then finally, a fourth version of this might, might be something that sounds like this. My God is a loving God, and the, the Bible opposes homosexuality, um, but the specific injunctions must be placed in the larger contexts of love. Now, there are other versions of these, but these are the four most common ways that folks who are advocating for gay Christianity would, would try to reinterpret passages. And so what, they, what this ends up with is pieces like, like uh, Genesis 19. Um, what that turns into is it's, it's not about Sodom and Gomorrah and homosexuality. It's about gang rape, and gang rape is always wrong. Or Leviticus 19 and 20, the Old Testament no longer applies. And Christians are inconsistent because they say you should be against gay marriage, but you wear blended wool clothing. And so they use those kind of things. Um, Romans 1 doesn't really speak to homosexuality as we know it today because Paul was only writing about sexual acts, not about orientation. So that passage. So let me get you all to interact a little bit with some of these 
biblical shifts that are being attempted to be made. And Dan, let me, if you don't mind, let me start with you. What are some of your thoughts on this? Well, thank you. There's so much we can discuss yeah, on that. I'll just uh, hit a uh, a couple, two points, really. And uh, one is that we need to, you know, going back to something that Rosario said when in, even in her own personal experience and coming to faith and realizing that uh, this is the word of God, uh, that this, what's going on with this, with this hermeneutic, uh, we have to realize that we have men seeking to define the word of God rather than letting the word of God define them. And I think that's, that, that is one reversal that uh, Christians need to be alert to and, and also to uh, be very strong in resisting. Uh, we cannot begin to accept a hermeneutic that res- reverses that relationship. Uh, the second, and I think rather obvious, but uh, sometimes is, is, uh, is not discerned, and that is that all this the inter- the discussion on reinterpreting passages of Scripture that have been understood clearly for centuries and centuries, not only by the church, but by, you know, uh, Jewish uh, rabbis uh, for centuries even before that, there's been no question about what they mean. There's no question that... that uh, uh, same-sex attractions and behavior were were uh, uh, considered sinful and wrong and, and, and punished by God. God con- concerned very much about that. Um, and that only in the current generation, only in the last two decades, uh, ha- have there now been this, this uh, you know, focus on, well, maybe the Bible doesn't mean what it actually says. And what that's about is actually to change the way that we as Christians who believe the Bible is the word of God think about homosexuality. Um, you know, if you're, we're talking about people who believe that the, word of, that, that the Bible isn't the word of God, the Bible's just simply a human book, it's full of errors, you know, then why don't they just say, well, it says that, you know, it, it opposes homosexuality, but I disagree with it, it's wrong. Um, and that's the way they used to treat it. So what the, rein, the effort to reinterpret the Bible is aimed at changing the, the ethical thinking of Christians who, believe, who see themselves as under and accountable to the Word of God, how we think about it. And so we need to look at their arguments and say, how persuasive are they? How do they treat Scripture? And essentially, it's people who don't believe the Bible is the Word of God trying to change the way people who think the Bible is the Word of God interpret it, which you know, is rather audacious. Yeah, interesting. You want to jump in on that anymore? Yeah, yeah. You know, I have a, a number of thoughts on this subject. You know, one is that this gestalt in what the Bible means could not have taken place if Bible-believing Christians had really been reading their Bible. I, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't mean to just be the, 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 you know, the, 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 sure the homeschool mom yeah, with the spanking spoon here, but you know, it, it's really not the fault of gay rights activists that people don't read their Bible properly. I, I expect gay rights activists to, you know, throw everything they've got, and I expect the average Bible-believing Christian sitting at home having said, but, but it's never about six pesky verses because the Bible is a unified biblical revelation. So, you know, when your neighbor says, but it's about these six pesky verses, I expect the homeschool mom who's also walking her dog to say, but think about a tapestry. If you plucked out six threads 
it would collapse. The Bible's never been about six pesky verses. Who told you that? So, you know, I, I would just, you know, part of me is, is, would like to both encourage and rebuke Christians at this point. That if we're unhappy with the way that the Bible is being talked about and treated, we need to know it a whole lot better than we do. We need to be reading it more than we're reading anything else. And if we're so keen on Facebook doctrine, maybe we need to take back off a little on that and increase our biblical doctrine because the world's not gonna do that. Um, You know, I think this I'll goes, stop while I'm ahead. Yeah, I, I think what this goes back to, and Sam, you might want to comment here briefly on this, but uh, you talked about the importance of the Old Testament and particularly this creation ordinance in Genesis chapters 1. Really, uh, if you wanted to focus on key verses, it would seem like verses 26 through 28 are crucial to this mm-hmm. because Absolutely. the passage, one man, one woman, it's the clear definition of what marriage is, but that also is a pre-sin mm-hmm. context that shapes all of humanity. Right. So, so how does this then affect the way you think of this as you counsel folks and as you uh, engage people on this topic? Yeah, you know, for me, a, a lot of it goes back to that, uh, you know, how, how do we understand the, the, the natural order that we're given, the, 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 the biology that a person is born with, the chromosomal and genital makeup a person has when they're born. And if that is merely the product of some uh, long line uh, collocation of molecules and uh, animals and evolution that was completely undesigned, there was no rational order or order behind it, then I think we have um, probably good reason from that worldview perspective to kind of make things up as we go along. And on the other hand, if we believe there is a creation order and order-er, that has ordained this creation, fallen though it may be, then we can say, you know, there, there's something unique, special, important, and good about the way most babies are born. And yes, we do see exceptions, and we see intersex conditions, and we see hermaphroditism and those sorts of things. But the exceptions, if anything, just establish that something's wrong here and something's right over here. But we believe that that something right over here is, is divine. It's supernatural. It comes from another place. It's not all understood from just within my own mind and within this particular physical context that I understand. So for me as a psychologist, as a counselor, um, you know, I, I, I often wonder, what would it be like if I went back and tried to counsel the way I did once upon a time before I was saved? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's disorienting for me to even contemplate not having any guidelines, any structure, any structure-er that's over all this and giving it some, some meaning and some telos and an endpoint. So I, I, I think for, for me as a, as a counselor uh, that uh, it makes all the difference in the world that I believe that peace, people are made in the image and likeness of God, first and foremost, that our, our uh, uh, progenitor is, is, is a supernatural, incredible being and not a monkey. And I'm not against monkeys, 
Um, but, you know, I, 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 I think that it grounds me in a very different place as I understand people. And, and yet the fall also helps me understand, especially when I look in the mirror or I read the news. Everything is really, really broken. Things are really screwed up. In here, God help me. And out there, God help us. And so I, I think that the, I think we need to remember that we have a very, very strange story to tell these days, that people aren't going to get it unless you spend a lot of time with them and find some ways to present to them that this is where our perspective is grounded. It's not just because we're, we're rule keepers and we want to constrict people into our tiny little boxes. This gives me yeah. opportunity to kind of transition towards the transgender topic. So we've, mm-hmm. we've talked a little bit about why the SCOTUS decision is a big deal in marriage and, and how we think about what marriage is. And also, Sam, let me stay with you and think through this. And uh, guys, if you'll put up the next slide of, of Bruce Jenner and his family to, uh, to help the folks kind of get a sense of this. So coming back to the discussion of, of, of Bruce Jenner in particular, his experience has really shaped the nation. The, the, the media has done an all-out onslaught attempt to try to normalize his experience to the point where uh, I'm tempted to talk about ABC and ESPN as perhaps some of the most forward cultural uh, organizations trying to push a homosexual agenda. So here you have a man who's married to a woman. They have children. You're in this context. Um, and so instead of us chasing down the media biases. Let's talk about the person and his experience. And Sam, I'd love for you to help us to think through, from your perspective, how do we think about a man who all of his life has identified in one way and then in his later years, older than me, uh, decides to start identifying as a woman, calls himself Caitlin now, has some surgeries to try to make his body look a little bit more feminine on that. Talk to us a little bit about same-sex orientation versus uh, homosexuality, a little bit about transgenderism. Let's see if we can kind of make some heads or tails of this. How do, you, how do you process this Bruce Jenner phenomenon? And then, Rosaria, I'd love to get your thoughts on it as well. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I think that the typical man on the street reaction to seeing a man dressed up in a dress trying to look like a woman of, what on earth is going on here? There's something wrong. Uh, I think that's actually... Uh, there, there's, there's a great deal of, of truth to that sense that God has given us, that something's off here. There's something wrong here. Um, I, I think that we need to pay attention to that and yet also to recognize that, once again, if I look in the mirror, there's something wrong here as well. And, you know, in, in Ecclesiastes 9, um, uh, Solomon says that uh, insanity... Uh, is in the hearts of all men, that we're all disordered according to God. And so I, I think on the one hand, we have to say what the American Psychiatric Association no longer says with the, the DSM-5, that something's disordered, something's not right here. And, and that should for us call forth compassion and concern for somebody that's broken, that's, that's troubled. So now we have uh, what used to be called gender identity disorder is now called gender dysphoria in the DSM-5, the diagnostic manual that just came out a couple years ago. 
And so what, what is happening, some of the things that, that Dan and Rosario are talking about here in terms of the redefinition by postmodernism and current culture of, of gender and what it fundamentally means to be a person um, is now affecting so, uh, so that the mental health establishment would no longer see a transgender person as disordered. In fact, what is understood to be disordered is the body, not the soul, not the, not the mind. Not, these are mental disorders, so this person doesn't have a mental disorder. They have a body disorder that needs to be fixed in order to align it so that it's now congruent with his feelings that he's a woman. And, and therein, that's the shift, right? That's the culture yeah, that yeah, no, no other yeah, time in yeah, history has yeah, that taken place. Yeah, and now yeah. this is totally yeah. overturned by the Supreme and, Court. And, and so if, if we don't anchor this back in creation and back in God, we don't have really a leg to stand on. Um, on the other hand, if we do, then we have reason to believe that there are two and only two genders, that there's a kind of complementarity and a telos here that's designed into the way God has made things. There is a right and a wrong that's rooted in what what is in ontology, in, in design, and in creation. And so um, I, I think we live in a very, very uh, strange day where um, meaning, uh, morality, and even reality now, we want to define it, redefine it. We want to reconstruct it on our terms. And I think that's what happens when we live, when we no longer thank and honor God. Okay. You know, jump in. Yeah, I, I think gender dysphoria is, is a real thing that people need to grapple with. And especially as we hear stories of two-year-olds and five-year-olds who are born saying, no, I am not a girl or no, I am not a boy. And our heart should just go out to them and to their parents. And, you know, Dr. Paul McHugh likens gender dysphoria a little bit to um, anorexia. You've got a, a daughter, say, who comes home, is emaciated, but is absolutely convinced that she is obese. Now, you want to be really tender with her. At the same time, you're not going to recommend liposuction to solve what is distressing her. So I, I recently had the opportunity to sit down with some students um, who identified either as trans or were allies of folks who identified as trans. And we had a really interesting discussion. And I said, you know, can you just help me out? Why do you think it's easier to change the body than the mind? Because that's exactly the issue. The issue is that the body and the mind have an incongruent war. And you know, one of the things that Christians need to realize is that of all the people on the planet, we should identify with that. You want to know what? We're all born that way, whatever that way is. When people tell me I was born this way, I don't argue that point. It's called original sin. And we are all born that way. It is a fully democratizing principle. We are on the same page. But I sat down with these students and I said, help me out. Explain to me why you think it's easier to change the body than the mind. And, and, and these students, two of one, said, because you can't change your mind. And I said, well, you know, you're right. You can't change your mind. Uh, but you know what else? You can't change your body either. You see, both require intervention. So I'm just, I'm just, it's just a question. Why have you, uh, you know, why do we not even want to think about the way that God's 
job in some ways in Jesus Christ is to redeem and change people. Why is that less possible then, you know, let's talk about these surgeries. Let's talk about a double mastectomy along with a hysterectomy for an 18-year-old. You know, I mean, let's talk about what it means when these surgeries don't work out so well. I mean, why is one so much... That doesn't seem easy to me. I mean, maybe I'm just a wimp, but nothing about double mastectomy and hysterectomy at the same time says easy. And you know, these students ag- agreed with me that that wasn't. And we, we, had a, we had, I think, a very good conversation. And one of the things that I believe is that the gospel is great news for everybody, but it may be the best news of all for people who are transsexuals and who come to faith. Because you know what? In the New Jerusalem, your body is restored and there is no genital mutilation. And the church needs to be ready to preach that gospel. Let me uh, keep us a few more minutes. I've got a couple more questions, and I don't want to leave us before we have the opportunity to address these. So one of them, if I could just get some quick thoughts from any one of the three of you on this in terms of something happening in our state right now. So based on this conversation with transgenderism, we have the President of the United States is actually uh, pressing for school systems in Virginia to open locker rooms that are geared towards either male or female to people who are now identifying as transgender. So at the high school level, federal regulations, he's attempting to bring that, that idea in. In our state, Pat McCrory, our governor, is, is resisting this. He doesn't want this law to come in, in here. So based on this discussion of transgender and this identity, how do we think about these kind of issues when they come down to where we are in our culture today? Do you have any thoughts on this, Dr. Heimbach? Well, that's a really big, big uh, question. I don't think I have a, a, a short bullet answer to that. Uh, I think it's really, it's a war between worldviews, uh, and it's a completely false worldview that is, that is driving this shift, driving this change. We obviously have to resist it, but it's not going to be easy to resist because what we're, if we just resist it at the, at the surface level, uh, it's just going to be a matter of time. And uh, we have to, from the beginning, be resisting it on a worldview that this is a lie, be willing to say it's a lie that we can't, can't stand up for. Uh, I want to just bring in some scripture here because I think uh, really what's at stake here is what we do with our natural desires as we experience them the way they are. And uh, although the transgender issue is new and it seems ludicrous and it seems dramatic, in some ways uh, we as Christians shouldn't be surprised because if we deny the existence of God, if we deny the existence of any kind of objective moral ordering and creation at all, then all we have left is our feelings. And they're the most real thing that we live with every day. And, uh, and, and the question is, what do we do with those feelings? Are they right the way that we, know, that we experience them, or are they wrong the way we experience them? And, uh, and the Christian answer is that we all uh, are, the, the desires that we have, yes, they're parts of uh, you know, our embodiment, and that's a gift from God, but they are untrustworthy, and they are misaligned. They all are misaligned, but we all have to learn to manage our desires and keep them within boundaries that we don't discover within ourselves or even within our bodies, but from, 
from something outside ourselves, which is, which is the word of God. And just a couple of verses, 2 Timothy 2.22 says that we're to flee lusts, that is wrong desires, and pursue righteousness. It's not enough simply to try to corral them. We have to pursue righteousness and that measure isn't in me. Um, we're to put to death evil desires. And, uh, and Galatians, that's from Colossians 3.5 and Galatians 5.24 says that those who belong to Christ, that's us as Christians, have crucified the flesh with its desires. That's un, that does not make sense to the world. And that's a very, uh, that's a very uh, misunderstood and hard to express, but nevertheless true message that we as Christians uh, have for the world, which is that your feelings the way they are are not trustworthy, and we have to align them to something else. Okay, good. Do you want to take a shot at that? Yeah, I, I would say that Christians, one of the things that Ken Smith did with me when we became friends, and we really became friends, uh, I mean, genuine friends, uh, one of the things he made really clear to me is that there's a difference between acceptance and approval, and that he could accept me just as I was. And that was it. We weren't going to argue about that. And I really appreciated that. That gave me the freedom to think through some of these issues of identity and, 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 the, and specifically the, the scriptures and uh, what it would mean to just drive a fresh nail into my flesh every day. So I think from a policy point, I think that we have to realize that we need to accept that uh, the transgendered movement is here and that uh, transgendered neighbors are going to need to use the bathroom in public places. I think we just need to accept that. Um, and I think that it would be wise to um, make provisions uh, about some kind of uh, single stall um, uh, unisex or family bathroom. And I think we just, I, I'm just, I just don't want to fight about that one. But I do think we need to keep locker rooms uh, and, uh, and women's rooms and men's rooms. Uh, I think we need to keep those boundaries clear. But yes, we have transgendered neighbors. We have transgendered friends. They need to use the bathroom. And I think that, uh, you know, that's a, r- a relatively modern envi- uh, reality that you get to do that in public uh, in, in, a, in a clean and safe way. So uh, that would be my suggestion. And I would just quickly just add to that, that th- this is one of those places when someone says this is always a private decision between how I think about myself. This is a great example of how it's not because now all of a sudden you're talking about billions of dollars of, of federal money going to making bathrooms and that's your tax dollars at work. So these worldview issues do matter at a, do. at a public level. All on ideas that. have a material force. We are running really short on time. In fact, we're actually a little bit over, but Rosaria, let me, uh, let me give you the last word here and, and let me put this question for you. And then after you do this, I'll show a few slides of some books and resources for those folks who are, are watching. But. We now have a bunch of folks in this room and online who may be asking some questions about uh, how to present the gospel, and you've kind of been touching on this a little bit, and one of the things maybe as we talk about the hope that's in Christ for the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender community, what, what would be some advice that you would have for us on the positive side of that, and then maybe some things that as someone who's come out of that lifestyle that you would say, here are some mistakes that people could make that, that you maybe want to avoid, and yeah. so take us home with that. And all right, all right. Well, first of all, I was not converted out of homosexuality. So if you think I was, I just was not. I was converted out of unbelief. And when uh, Ken Smith first met me, he realized that the biggest sin in my life was not being a lesbian. It was being an unbeliever. And so I would just really start there. I would just start there. I would not, I, I, there is not some kind of special gospel for people who struggle with same-sex desires. Um, there might be some special attention to community and some special need to 
intervene in loneliness when it comes to ministry, but there's not a special gospel. Um, and and you know, the good news of the gospel is everybody's good news. Um, so that would be one thing. I would also suggest that churches stop looking at singles as people who need to be fixed or fixed up. Uh, because that, that puts people who struggle in a no-win situation. Um, and, I, and I, for one, I'm, I'm glad that I think the conversation about reparative therapy has really moved to the margins and is not really at the center. I, I think that the church is competent to counsel. I think that people who struggle with same-sex attractions or people who struggle with anything need the same thing. We all need to be in a church of people who repent. We need to be in a church of people who know that they need to repent of their deepest sins. We need to be in a church of people who understand that original sin distorts us, and actual sin distracts us, and indwelling sin manipulates us, and that's for believers. We need to stop calling the unconverted to repent of sin because repentance is a gift from God and they can't. So we need to get it right at our end of things. And we need to know that the gospel travels on relationships. We need to deal with people as people, not positions. You don't have a gay neighbor. You have a neighbor named Bill, and he walks his dog, and he has a job, and he has a number of issues. Don't do what the sexual orientation movement wants you to do, and that see Bill only as someone who is, quote-unquote, a gay man. That is, that is a false understanding of personhood, and it has no biblical anthropology to it at all. Um, so the reality is, I think that the post-SCOTUS life gives us, um, in some ways, more liberty to really share the authentic gospel um, and to do so as neighbors and as friends. You know, you cannot share the gospel with the lost without getting close enough to get hurt or close enough to get ridiculed. So we need to get over this idea that, um, that somehow there is such a thing called a moral majority. We are, as Russell Moore puts it, a prophetic minority at best, and we need to move into that. And that's the same is true for our, our, gay and, our, our friends who identify as gay and lesbian or our friends who identify as, with any other struggle. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost, dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.com. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.